What is genomics? How is this field impacting medicine and human health? How deterministic are your genes? We find out next on 5 o'clock. Welcome back to the show. I'm Theral Timpson. And good evening. Let's relax and contemplate the mystery. Most scientists and historians agree that this is the century of biology. The last century was that of physics and chemistry. And the study of genes, particularly the sequencing of the human genome, has been at the frontier of biological research for the past generation. What insights has the genome yielded that has changed and is changing medicine today? What should you know about your genes when it comes to your health? My guest is an internationally renowned figure in the field of genomic medicine, particularly an area called pharmacogenomics. Dr. Howard McLeod. These are both topics I've been covering in another podcast for a dozen years, and one of our aims with 5 O'Clock is to engage some of the superstars I've met over the years in biology in some new talks for our general audience. Howard is Professor of Biology and Medicine and Director at the New Center for Precision Medicine and Functional Genomics at Utah Tech University in St. George, Utah, which happens to be my hometown and where I've been living again the past few years. I interviewed Howard when I was just starting the other podcast in the field of genomics, and now to meet up with him again by chance is a wonderful start for this new show. It seems almost auspicious. Welcome to 5 O'Clock, Howard McLeod. Thank you very much. It's amazing that we were thousands of miles away with our from here with our first one, and now we both ended up uh, in the same geography for this one. So that's it's great to see you again and great to be on this new show. I still remember um, everything about that show we recorded. You introduced us to pharmacogenomics. Um, I, I did want to say also you've been a member of FDA, Moffitt Cancer Center, NIH. Um, you've chaired international scientific collaborations. You're a businessman, um, and you founded a number of companies. Um, so, you know, you, you are one of these people who have been out there changing the world in this field that we've been covering. Um, so, yeah, to, to cross paths again is, is really nice as we start this new podcast. So first question, uh, your top-ranked pharmacogeneticist in the U.S., I saw, and number two worldwide. How did you end up in St. George? Yeah, so there's a certain point in time when you realize you you know what you do, you just need to know where to do it. And there are certain types of questions that are best asked at the uh, University of such and such, a famous, uh, you know, at, at Harvard or at uh, University of North Carolina, where you and I first met. Um, and then there's others that are best positioned um, at other universities, like like Utah Tech University. Um, and the work that's being done throughout the Intermountain Healthcare System. And really, it was the draw to to um, be able to impact a larger group of people, a group of people that often are left behind in terms of new innovation, and frankly, to also live in a gorgeous part of the United States of America. And that those three, they all came together with uh, St. George, Utah. So... Lincoln Nadald, uh, Dr. Lincoln Nadald had moved from Stanford to, to St. George uh, about eight, eight plus years ago. I knew him at that time, worked with him, saw what he was building up at Intermountain Healthcare. And so the chance to come in and take part of that, there was a critical mass because of him. 
Um, and so come in, be part of it, um, help grow things, help now um, make an impact on this up and coming university and basically bring a lot of this, not just to the urban setting, which we're continuing to do, but also taking this into rural settings. So why should a small hospital uh, in Southern Utah uh, be the last to get the new technologies? We can get in there and have them benefiting now while the, the urban places are also um, getting the benefits. So part of it is the draw to be in the thick of, uh, thick of democratizing this exciting area of medicine. That's certainly been a theme on our other podcast at Mandelspot is the democratizing of genomic medicine. And I, I've, I've talked to Lincoln and uh, been to the lab over there. It's called Precision Genomics. Intermountain yeah. Healthcare is known as one of the leading healthcare uh, companies around the nation for um, the the genomic revolution and genomic medicine. Let's get into genomics and just um, talk about how is genomics changing the world of medicine? Yeah, so we, we all want to know uh, what the future brings and to understand if we're going to have this particular medicine, uh, we want to know that it's likely going to work and likely not going to cause us an irritating rash or something even worse. Uh, we would like to know whether there are certain diseases that are likely to occur in our future um, compared to others. And so uh, genomics is a bit of a, of a crystal ball for an individual person in terms of trying to forecast what's coming. It's not perfect. There are all sorts of things that can happen that have nothing to do with your genome. But it does allow you to find some things much earlier than they would uh, declare themselves naturally. Uh, and so... The genomics now is ranging from, I have a cancer, what is this cancer and how should we treat it, all the way back to, I'm a young person, what things might uh, I have in my future as I age, um, and all everything in between. And so we're now seeing genomics as part of uh, pregnancy screening, non-invasive prenatal testing, as it's called, where you can get a blood sample and you can tell some things about the baby just from a blood sample, um, all the way through to which is the right um, pain control and anti-nausea medicine for hospice patients. So really the spectrum of life has some genomics sprinkled throughout it to try to uh, better optimize the way we can care for people. Okay, yeah, so you talked about seeing into our biology before uh, natural things start to occur. What you're talking about there is symptoms. Right. Um, I mean, that's a, that's what we talk about in the field. It's catching these things before you actually have symptoms. Well, and for example, you know, most people understand that there are types of cancers that could be inherited. And so that's an example where we can test a, we can test a woman when they're 20 years old and understand whether they are likely to have early, uh, early breast cancer. So normally you wouldn't even bother doing mammography until 40 years of age or, or so. But there are some women that genetically start to be at risk in their 30s. Well, we can now know that, start doing screening at 30 years of age rather than 40 years of age. 30 years of age is not really very useful for most people, but very useful for those who have particular genetic uh, configuration. So, you know, some of it is not just symptoms, but... Um, knowing that a a you know a deadly disease could be occurring, 
and trying to get it while it's curable, um, as opposed to you know it occurring, the symptoms lead you to, to try to find out what's going on, and the end result is it maybe it's advanced by the time it's found. So, so let's pull back even a little bit further and just talk about what is genomics in general. When I tell folks that I have a genomics podcast, I get a blank look. <laughs> and and I'm curious if you're getting some of that now. Um, lots of times I see their desire to understand what I'm talking about. You know, it's this curiosity in the blankness. But, um, you know, most people, and I'm talking folks in my personal life, right? Family, friends, um, people in restaurants that I may get chatting with. I'm, I'm pretty sociable um, at the bar, that kind of thing. Um, but they do not know. And so then I say, you know, having your genome sequenced. That's the first thing I'll say. And sometimes I get recognition with that. I'd say about 20% of the time. So it's it's not a lot. And so after that, I'll say, you know, like when you get your 23andMe. And then I usually see people's eyes light up. Most people get it then. And then they'll start to tell me their stories about this. A lot of times it's it's family history. So So what's been your experience just talking to the average person? How do you explain genomics? I, I often I'll remind people that they tend to look more like their siblings than they do the rest of the population. And my children look more like me than they do you. That's a, a good thing for you, bad thing for them. But the idea uh, that there's this similarity is really reflecting some of the shared genomics that, that family members have. And that is also true when you look at uh, inheritance of of um, ability to to taste certain things or ability to to um, get a sunburn or not in a severe way or ability to break down a medicine and so this um, this alphabet that we have inside each of our cells that we've inherited from you know we've inherited one alphabet from mom and one alphabet from dad and they come together um, that then starts spelling out the the different features that we have as a person. And so it's no surprise that there's a lot of things that run in the family because that's how this is shared. Um, but it, it means that we can go and we can read that chapter of the book and understand, oh, this is a, a, a romantic chapter. This is a chapter that is causing mystery, has mystery. This is a chapter that is more sporty. You know, each chapter might have a different theme to it. Um, and same thing when we look at our use of DNA, uh, not just as an alphabet, but as a predictor of, of health. And so. The idea that we have something stable inside us that can be read, uh, similar to a book, and tell us some some features about our past inheritance and our future um, is is really what genomics is, is all about. So tell us about this new center at Utah Tech. Yeah, so when we looked at the, the way we could reach the most people, uh, we realized that that Utah Tech was uh, growing as a university. There, no one was afraid of it. No one was afraid they were going to steal their patients or going to be. Uh, there was no big rivalry where um, people are. You know, like when I was at UNC, you know, there was a Duke UNC rivalry that kept some people from from benefiting from both places. That doesn't really occur with with Utah Tech, um, and so it was a platform on which we could start reaching a lot more a lot more people. And especially when you look at the folks in rural areas, there is a, uh, a lack of folks trying to help them keep up. And so 
that's when why we settled there as opposed to some of the universities that are in a more urban setting. And uh, the, the Center for Precision Medicine and Functional Genomics, it has some basic science going on. So there's some things called zebrafish where one can can uh, replace the, the fish version of a gene with the human version of a gene. And what we're doing there is looking at genetic variation we're finding in patients uh, out in the, in the, at the hospital and, and in St. George and other, other locations and that have genetic variants. We're not sure whether they are of consequence or not. And so we can put them into these fish and see whether they change the function, the features of a fish. And if they do, then we know that gene has that gene variant has the ability to cause some action, and we can start to looking further. All right, does this really mean something in the person? So it's not like we're going to take fish findings and go straight to a person, but it's kind of an initial screen to say, does this have a chance of changing biology? And if it does, well then let's see whether we need to use this to help the person uh, predict, you know, their risk of a disease or, or such. And then it. That also goes all the way across the spectrum to some of the work that we're doing with pharmacogenomics. So that can be with retired um, individuals trying to make sure they get the best care uh, with the lowest chance of, of adverse events. Or we're doing some work now with uh, student health. And this is work that we're getting support from uh, community donors where they're helping us uh, do pharmacogenomics in the context of Utah Tech students who are seeking help with mental health. So about 1,000, a little bit over 1,000 um, students per year at most of the university, each of the universities across uh, the region uh, will seek, uh, go to the Student Health Center for mental health uh, assistance. And some of them will need medicine to optimize things. And so um, at so starting with Utah Tech, developing the, the program there to make sure that if they do need a medicine, it's the best uh, chance of benefit from the very first dose. Um, and then the, if that goes successfully, we'll then take that to other universities in the region and then maybe even nationally um, to try to make sure that these kids who are trying to become our future um, can be, be on track as soon as possible. Um, often a, a depression diagnosis will cause a student one or two uh, semesters um, a year um, and really derail their education. Um, or, of course, there's even worse risk where it'll become debilitating. We have a terrible suicide rate in, in the United States right now among, amongst uh, university-age children, uh, kids, uh, young adults. Um, and, and so, you know, again, trying to intervene there. So the center allows us to do everything from you know, basic work all the way up to clinical clinical intervention uh, in one place. Now, what is exactly the connection of genetics or genomics to mental health? Yeah, so in rare situations, you can see that there's a certain type of mental health disorder that is genetically caused. But most of the time, what we're doing is we're trying to help decide which medicine is going to benefit the person. So if you have depression or anxiety, Typically, what will happen is I will pick a medicine for you based on my experience. I think this one has a good chance of giving you some benefit. You will start on the medicine, and four to six weeks later, we'll see how, how it's gone. And if you haven't got any benefit, we might add another medicine or switch to a different medicine. 
And eventually we may find you the right medicine. But the idea of having to go six months before we find how to control uh, your depression and make it so that it's less debilitating, that, that's just not acceptable. That's not the way it should be. But it's just been a limitation of our, our understanding of medicine. Pharmacogenomics allows you to take the, the 10 options that are out there and weed a bunch of them out because they're likely to not work or they're likely to cause bad effects. You can tell and that based on the genes. Yeah, based on the genes. So we can take a little scraping of your cheek or you can spit in a tube or give a blood sample. We can uh, extract the DNA from that and do a, a little uh, laboratory test that looks at the alphabetic letters, um, some of the alphabetic uh, letters in the person, uh, the genetic code. And then from that, they'll say, ah, medicine A looks like a good one, but in this person, this would cause uh, a bad effect. Or medicine B looks also like a good option, but it's hardly has hardly any chance of working because of the genetics that are present. Let's go with medication C, still a very good choice, and genetically it looks like it has a much better chance of bringing benefit. So rather than going through medicine A, followed by medicine B, followed by medicine C, and eventually getting to the right answer, we can try to go straight to the right answer and um, help these patients, in the example I gave you, these young adults, um, get to a, a better state of mental health and get on with their future. That's a great story, and it's a wonderful example of, that's an example of pharmacogenomics, right? Um, so basically, it is the interaction of drugs uh, with our particular genetic makeup. And there are a number of these tests, and um, there's a database um, kept uh, of drug-to-gene uh, uh, interactions. Um, and this particular area of, of mental disease um, is one area where doctors, it's terrible, um, really struggle with knowing which drug um, to choose right away. Um, and I, I think probably people are probably familiar with that. But yeah, you, you can go on several different courses um, to try to find an optimal. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's, I'm not faulting anyone that um, has had to go on those other courses. It's just that now our science is catching up where we can eliminate that. You know, we're blessed with so many options and that's a good problem and a bad problem in that we have to pick one to start with. And when you have literally 30 different choices and you have to pick one for a patient, you need all the extra help you can get. And so genetics really, you know, pharmacogenetics allows it to come in there, weed a bunch of the options with low chance of working out of there, and then focus in on the stuff that is likely going to bring benefit. Okay. Now you've been this pharmacogenetics superstar. Um, there's other fields where it's really helping as well, not just in mental health. Uh, right, but cardio, um, cancer. Um, when do folks get a genetic testing? I mean, this could be helpful for a lot of people, um, particularly, you know, cardio, for instance. Um, is that something that people seek out on their own? Yeah, so uh, patients certainly do seek out. They, you know, they might hear about it, maybe even from this this podcast, um, and and um, understand. Oh, there are some options. That would help me. Um, we see some places, um, Intermountain Healthcare is one of them, that offers pharmacogenomics as part of the benefits package. So the 
because they know that um, if their if their employees um, can get the best medicine soon enough, they can get back to work and, and oh. help out. Um, there are uh, many uh, primary care physicians and specialists as well that that um, use use pharmacogenomics as a way of guiding therapy. And in primary care, it's you know which pain medicine, which antidepressant, which high cholesterol medicine, which uh, medicine for uh, for a cardiac arrest, the cardiac stent thing, the you know antiplatelet medicine. It's being used in a number of different areas. Um, and so primary care is a great place to apply that because there's so many different benefits. Um, whereas in cardiology, they're not really thinking about the, the use in cancer or the use in, in uh, uh, gastrointestinal disease. They're thinking about the heart. Um, and so um, a number of different ways of, of starting this. Many of the cancer patients that uh, we're, we're working with here in St. George and throughout the region are getting pharmacogenetics at the time they're diagnosed because they're needing a treatment for their cancer, they're needing pain control, anti-vomiting medicine, uh, antidepressants in some cases, controlling their bleeding risk, all of those things, uh, pharmacogenomics can contribute to choosing the right dose or the right drug. And so we're seeing more and more application happening. Not all doctors know about it. Most, unless you graduated very recently, you didn't hear about it in your training. Um, and so a lot of uh, doctors in the community are trying to catch up. And frankly, our center at Utah Tech is trying to help with that uh, because it shouldn't be the responsibility of some busy clinician in Enterprise Utah to who doesn't get to go to national meetings and such to try to keep up. Enterprise is a very them. small town, about an hour yeah, away from St. George. Small little town there. Some very dedicated medical uh, uh, folks there. And they, they and their patients deserve the best. And so, you know, let's help them. And so um, that's what we found is that by not just letting them know about it, but by having their back, by helping them when they have difficult cases, that is causing a much more rapid adoption of the new technologies. And that way people can benefit from them, uh, even if they don't live in the biggest city. So what you're saying is when people um, basically inter interface with, say, a, a care facility, when they get diagnosed, they go in for treatment, then they may and they get put on a drug, they may get pharmacogenetic tested at that point um, just to get put on the drug and when they get on treatment. Um, but um, ideally, how would you like to see it? And, and what kinds of things can you do with TechU? I mean, it, ideally, and this is some of the things we talked about on our other program, um, we may want to have this, we may want to get this testing done earlier, right? Because you never know when you're going to go into the hospital. Um, and we may want to have this in our electronic medical records. So my children were, uh, had their pharmacogenomics run at birth. Hmm. And that's because I knew better. That's because their dad I, is <laughs> is the leader so, on this. <laughs> that way, if they needed a medicine, I hope they wouldn't need a medicine for quite some years to come. But when they did, whether it was an antibiotic for their ear infection or whether it was uh, something else, uh, uh, an albuterol inhaler for my son's asthma, um, we knew the genetic profile and, and were able to help um, make some decisions based on that. And so, you know, the, you, the earlier you have the data, the earlier you can benefit from it. 
Um, and so, um, you know, not everyone is is equipped to get the most out of it. You know, they I happen to work in the field, so I was able to to um, help with that. But we're, as more and more tools come out to help uh, patients, families, uh, doctors, there we're seeing it move earlier and earlier on because you don't want to have the information after you have to start a medicine. You want to have the information before you start the medicine and then the choice of medicine from the very start can be optimized. Um, and so we're, we're seeing that happen in a number of settings. There are, there are some health plans that once you have had a one prescription for a chronic disease, you know, it might be ibuprofen for joint pain, or it might be something more dramatic than that. At that point, they offer pharmacogenomics. And that's because they know you are starting a process where you're probably going to need more medicines over the years, and they want to have that data in place and be able to make the best choices going forward. So it's still evolving, um, but personally, I want to have the data as soon as possible um, so that we don't have to waste people's time and money. Hi, this is Theral Timpson. I'd like to invite you to sign up for our newsletter at www.5withtheral.com to be notified of each new 5 o'clock podcast, as well as new articles coming out each week. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's show. Now, you, we briefly mentioned earlier, you mentioned prenatal diagnostics. This is testing in um, reproductive care. It's also made big inroads in cancer. I mean, it's totally changed the face of cancer. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. The, the testing of blood to look at circulating uh, DNA from a baby, like is done with prenatal testing, because uh, the mother's DNA and the baby's DNA are both circulating around. And so one can look at, 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 at that. That same principle has That was a big breakthrough in the 90s. Um, the, yeah, there was this and, and, circulating and, DNA. And, yeah, and just just revolutionized the way pregnant women are managed now. You know, before you you had to uh, stick a needle a place that could cause all sorts of problems, um, and now you don't. You know, you can stick it in a vein and get some blood. And that that technology now allows us to look for early signs of cancer. And uh, there are tests now available where you can do a blood sample and look for the presence of fifty different types of cancer. Um, and that's there. And then what you were referring to. If you did have a cancer, you can take the tissue from that cancer, you can do DNA sequencing in the laboratory and ask the question, what is the gas pedal and what is the brake um, for this car, for this, for this cancer? For this cancer. Um, are, there, mm -hmm. are there certain genes that are turned on that shouldn't be? Um, and that's why the cancer is growing um, in ways it shouldn't. Is there a brake pedal that maybe is is been disabled and isn't working properly, and that's why the cancer is is growing with an uncontrolled growth rate? Um, that type of information is independent of anatomy. So a a breast cancer and a and a colon cancer could look the same genetically, um, and therefore you could choose a therapy that's right to stop the cancer. And so we have scenarios now where we're literally using a skin cancer medicine to stop a lung cancer because they're both being driven by the same gene. The, the same gas pedal has been stuck down for those cancers. 
And so if you're a surgeon, you need to know the anatomy because you're trying to cut it out. Uh, for radiation treatment, you're trying to poke the beam to the right spot. So and again, anatomy matters. But if you're using medical therapy for a cancer, you really don't care where it started from. You care what is driving it. What are the, what are the things inside it that you need to stop? And so that's where the sequencing comes in, identifies, hey, this gene here is, uh, has many more extra copies than it should. Now we can target that. Give a medicine, small, like usually a pill that the patient can take in the privacy of their own home. It circulates around and starts clumping down on these genes, stopping them from having their, their uncontrolled effects. And so DNA has just dramatically changed the way patients are managed. They're living a lot longer because of that. Um, and um, being able to live in a way that they're, they're getting a therapy that they can tolerate. So it, it's changed things dramatically. We still have a long ways to go, but it really has made a dramatic difference even in the last five years. Wow. Yeah. I've heard on the program that, for instance, breast cancer is now 98% survivable. survivable. And, you know, I, I, I can't remember the numbers on other cancers, but we're doing better and better on on colon cancer. For instance, you talked about early cancer uh, prediction tests or detection, early cancer detection tests. Um, they're doing very well with colon cancer there. Um, but as you say, there's some cancers, which have always been hard, which are still hard, uh, a, a long ways to go, like um, pancreatic cancer, for instance. Well, and, and we're trying to... Uh help oncologists because this is this is new like we've been talking about a lot of this is new and if you if you trained five years ago you don't know as much about it as you need to um and so we're trying to help oncologists because we're finding these terrible situations you know we had one situation a, a few months ago patient with breast cancer got the the usual treatments for the first second and third line of therapy as they're called they worked for a while then they stopped working Try the next one, worked for a while, then stopped working. Try the next one, worked for a while, stopped working. At that point, they sequenced the tumor. Instead of doing it at the start, hmm. sequenced it at that point. We found that the gas pedal was something you wouldn't have guessed. It was not the usual breast cancer stuff. It was a different gas pedal. There was a medicine that could be used that uh, is, is curative in, in that situation. It's a rare situation, but it is just... Uh, incredibly active therapy. Unfortunately, because of that, the time that that patient was, was uh, evaluated, while we waited for the test results, her disease got worse and she ended up having to go into hospice before she could get treatment. And once we found the result, it just really changed the way that practice is doing their sequencing because if that had been known earlier, that patient would still be alive today. Oh, wow. And that... That is why we're trying to do this is it is not just um, interesting, you know, for the, it's not for just for the scientific curiosity. It is the type of thing that can control a disease in some cases forever, in some cases long enough for new science to come out. You know, back in the, in the 90s, there's a couple of patients that haunt me. Um, I, not every day, but I think about them often. They were patients that had a, a um, gastrointestinal tumor that was driven by one particular gene. And they both of them died within a month of getting a new medicine, Gleevec or a Matinib as it's called, that 
hits that gene, stops that gene. If I had found a way, we tried that really hard, but if I had found a way to keep them alive for one extra month, they would probably be alive today, 20 years later. Oh, that is haunting, Howard. That is haunting. And um, we tried. We didn't have the tools to do that. But, you know, so close. And, and so when people say, oh, what's, why bother? Why should I even bother? We know things today. There are treatments available today that weren't available five years ago that can cause dramatic effect. We still need more. There's still plenty of room to grow. But by knowing that, if you're a, you know, much, me and my relatives were, were farmers and ranchers, I know what it's like to not be able to be away from the ranch, from the farm. You, you can't go to five days a week for five weeks of radi- radiation because your cows won't, won't handle that. Um, and so they think, well, I just won't even bother. I'll just stay at home and die. Well, we encourage people to at least get evaluated because there might be therapies where they can wake up, take a pill, go milk the cows, go do their day, um, and be able to keep that disease controlled for years. And, and so that's... You know, a lot of what we're trying to do is, you know, meet people where they are, not insist that they have to come to the big center, not insist that they have to have certain types of treatment that they that don't fit into their life, um, but rather find ways to get them a treatment that's going to give them benefit. And often it's genomics that allows us to understand what that is. You know, I, I was at my doctor's for a checkup a couple of weeks ago, and she said, there's this test you should get. And I said, okay, and what is it? And she went on and, and um, blah, 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 blah. And she said, yeah, it's called gallery. And, <laughs> and so she said it checks for over 50 different cancers. And I listened to her. So it's, it's what you were talking about earlier. It's an early cancer yeah. detection test. It's sort of the hot new thing in the field. Um, and it's still early days for the test, but I was surprised it's already made its way to my um, doctor's office. She's a concierge doctor. She's not associated with a big, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Intermountain had something like this. But, um, but you know, she's just practicing on her own, and it's made it uh, to frontline care. So there, it's, you know, like you said, it's not perfect. It'll be better next year than it is this year and, and, and better the year after that. But it allows us to look for cancers that we just have no other way of finding um, until someone gets symptoms. So it doesn't replace mammography. It doesn't replace a pap smear. It doesn't replace colonoscopy or, or such. But it, it's another way of looking. And then there's 47 other cancers that we have no version of, of looking for to screen for them that it now allows in. So there are places, for example, at Intermountain Healthcare, any employee that's 50 years of age or older who is under the, the health system's health plan, they get that test you mentioned free uh, once every couple of years. Um, and if they, um, if they are younger than that or they just want it and they don't meet the other criteria, they can buy it at a, uh, at a volume discounted price. So health systems are, you know, employers are looking at this as a way of, of trying to show that their their employees that hey we're trying we're trying to help you um and and that way they'll stay and still work for the, you know for the for them um but the you know the idea that you can do a blood test and you know people always said when are we going to have a blood test for cancer well now we do and we're going to have a lot of them out there they're going to get better and better and better but um certainly from amongst the patients i've been involved with 
that have fa- found using gallery as, as, as one brand, the only brand on the market currently. Um, the patients that I've been involved with that, that had a positive result, they all had a cancer. None of them expect, uh, suspected it. And it was caught at a stage when it could be easily dealt with rather than a stage when it had spread across their body. Um, and so that's just a, a you know anecdotal experience. But as the data comes out, we're starting to see that you know, this kind of use of genomics can you know, really be useful uh, and, and help out uh, you know, people who otherwise would find out too late. And you know, nobody, nobody wants to find out they have cancer, right? I'm not saying that it's an easy thing to find out. But boy, I'd rather find out when it can be treated easily rather than, you know, having to have, uh, you know, pain and misery. So this is a very exciting um, area of genomics and genomic research is cancer because it's so uh, genetically determined and um, it's been a place where we can come up with medications. Um, What about other disease areas? Like, I mean, diabetes is a big one in America. Right, I think heart disease is still the number one killer, um, at least before the pandemic, <laughs> even more than cancer. Uh, why hasn't uh, genetics or genomics uh, been able to help there? So it's starting to make uh, some some progress. So if we take cardiology as a as an example, um, we're seeing now that there are a number of inherited disorders that one can detect very early, and you can detect it when you're know, well below before there's any heart damage that is going on and understand, hey, this person has a high risk of sudden death or this person has a high risk of heart failure. You can know about it early. You can intervene. That that sudden death is a, is a rare case, right? And there's one gene that they do look for there. It's called FH or familial hypercholesterolemia, um, well, that, which, which is, a, yeah. is a very good one. Yeah, and, that, and that's certainly part of the, the testing for the cholesterol side. But there's some also there's also some less common ones for for heart uh, for sudden death that are with some of the potassium and sodium channels. Oh, and those are so and they're fairly common or not common. They're less rare um, in in Utah because some of the large families. Um, but for, you know, for example, as part of a large population health study we were doing um, across Utah. We you know, found one gentleman in particular um, who had one of these variants. When we talked with him, he said, uh, you know, all my family die in their 40s. Right? Like, okay, <laughs> okay, we might know why. <laughs> so um, he got an implantable defibrillator put in his chest. So it would uh, shock him if he ever went into that. He was warned that if it goes off, it's going to bring you to your knees. It's, it's quite a thing for it to go off. It's, you know. Well, a couple of months later, it went off. And he told us, um, it, like you said, it brought me to my knees and then I got back up. And it's the, and then I got back up part that would not have been true in most cases because that would have been a terminal event uh, that, that occurred. But because we knew about it with genetics, intervened with his permission, we were able to make it so that when the event did happen, it wasn't a fatal event. And he could get back up and go throughout his day. And so that's the sort of thing that we want to be normal. We don't want to be normal that you have the problem. But if you do have the problem, we want it to be an inconvenience, not a not a literally taking your life. Okay. So um, as I said, genetics is changing some of these other areas. Too. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, no, there are some cool cardio tests. Um, diabetes has been more difficult. Um, it's called a common disease, and the the gene interactions are just so complex. Is that right? Yeah, it, it is. It's a it's a, um, a collaboration between your genetics and your diet and your exercise and probably some factors that we don't even know about yet um, that all kind of you know sleep might be involved there. Um, that all kind of come together. And, you know, there's some data, um, there's some studies that, so Dr. Nephi Walton um, is a medical geneticist based out of the Salt Lake City area, mm-hmm. just a super smart, terrific guy. And he's done some analysis in a genetic cause of diabetes called mature onset diabetes of the young. So MODI as it's known. Mm-hmm. And what he initially found, he initially was very confused because he found that the patients that had a genetic risk for diabetes weren't getting diabetes. And as he dug into it further, it was patients who were exercising a lot and having good diets. And so they were basically outrunning their disease um, because they were able to um, keep themselves. Now, eventually it might happen. But many of these patients, because of other factors, lifestyle factors, dietary factors, the genetics did not dominate. Whereas in other areas, and you mentioned familial hypercholesterolemia or FH, that's an area that you cannot outrun. Your genetics cause your cholesterol to be so high that exercise and diet cannot overcome it. You have to intervene with medical therapy, with a statin or something like that. Um, And so... Again, Interesting. Know, genetics, genetics, but not in isolation. So genetics in the context of you and your life. And how do we use it in some cases? Maybe, you know, I don't want to take a pill. I don't want to have an injection. So I'm going to go ahead and, and exercise, diet, things like that. In other cases, you should exercise, you should diet, but you're also going to need this medicine because we can't prevent the, the plaque that will occur in your heart from high cholesterol. So it's a, it's, you know, we're, this, this book of life is opening up where we're getting these very interesting chapters coming out, understanding, oh, well, what's true for this gene is different for this one, you know, for some very logical reasons. Um, take us a bit into the future. What, what can you see um, might be some likely scenarios in the future? I mean, even if you just stick with diabetes and cardio there, um, might we be told in the future, um, okay, these um, genetic uh, tests we should definitely have and have them early on. I mean, maybe are we going to be sequenced at birth? I mean, like your kids. Um, and then might we be told, okay, with the diabetes um, uh, genetic mutations, you could actually outrun these with certain, you know, um, plans, diet and, and, and exercise plans. But these ones you cannot, like you're saying, FH. And so you just got to Make sure you're, you know, tested and be aware of them and have them in your electronic medical records. Take us into the future of, of how this may unfold. Well, I'm a big fan of individuals being as well informed as they can be and then making their choice. And I think that's going to be one of the big benefits as we start applying genetics and genomics more, more commonly is that you will be able to make that choice with a much clearer lens. If you choose not to exercise or diet, um, which is those are two things that I I struggle with, <laughs> um, there it will be done with eyes open. It will be done knowing 
that there are some risks. And you know, life is full of risk. We're we're deciding whether to take, uh, uh, you know, we're here in Utah, whether to take I-15 or a back road um, when we drive from St. George to New Harmony. Well, that that road, um, we might make different choices based on our our how much of a hurry we're in, whether we are, are afraid of the fast traffic, whether we love the countryside. You know, all sorts of factors come in in terms of those kinds of choices, weighing the risks. And I think one of the big benefits of genomic data is we'll know a little bit more about our individual personal risk and be able to apply it um, in our in our lives. And the timing of when it's applied will be clearer. Um, it might be at birth, but also, you know, we know that there are certain times in life when our risk goes up. So the reason why mammography and colonoscopy and and a lot of other screening happens around 40, is 40s right about the time you start uh, going, um, I guess I shouldn't go uphill, I'd maybe start going downhill in terms of, <laughs> of your risk of problems. Well, maybe that's when some of these genetic tests happen to, so you can prepare yourself in that way. But overall, the ability of a person to decide, you know what, I wanna know things, I don't wanna know things, I wanna know, you know what it means, I don't, prefer that a patient decides not to understand something and not to know risk, but I love that it's their decision and I want to help them make that decision. And so I think that's, that's one of the exciting things to me is it's no longer, oh, I'm afraid of needles as being the reason why someone doesn't do it. Rather, it's, you know, I've been able to, to have this test. I now know what the risks are. I have, um, you know, everyone has the average risk, but do I have above average? Or now I know I can go forward. We do that now at birth for cystic fibrosis and for um, uh, PKU, uh, other diseases of, of metabolism. And the reason we do that is if we, the sooner we intervene, the more of a normal life the baby can have. And so it's a similar principle as we look at it for adults or as you know, other testing comes in. When do we intervene to give someone the best chance of living the life they want to live? So are we just at the beginning of learning all of this uh, genetics and genomics? Um, by the way, what is the difference of genetics and genomics? <laughs> well, the, the, the now I've really thrown you a curveball. <laughs> yeah. So well, the joke is that genetics means you're over 40 and genomics means you're under 40, you know, in terms of the naming, you know, it's just, it's oh, more okay. <laughs> in reality, um, genetics tends to focus on the kind of the, the usual inherited problems um, where you're looking at maybe one gene, you're looking at the BRCA one gene and risk of breast cancer or such. Whereas genomics, you're looking at the whole genome. And so if you're looking at a bunch of different genes, really genomics is probably the better term. Okay, got it. So, are we early days for for sure. learning about all this, or do you think we're kind of in the middle? Um, or do you think we're wrapping things? I mean, I mentioned this the century of biology, and because we know everything yeah. about physics now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, sure. We know a lot about physics. But I I think we're I, I, we're not at the beginning, but I think we're still around the third or fourth inning of the baseball game, you know. And and if you don't follow baseball, there's nine innings in a in a baseball game. So we're still pretty early on. We know some stuff. We now have the technologies to know a lot more. And as time goes on, you know, I expect that, you know, 10 years from now, hopefully, maybe 15, 20 years from now, 
we really won't spend a lot, a lot of time talking about genomics. And the reason why is this is just normal. It's just part of the data we get and help choose our uh, our futures, or choose our lives, um, help guide our lives. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, the quest is to make things normal. And you know, there by you know, we don't we're not amazed that we can look up what the weather is going to be today and tomorrow. You know, it's just something that at one time was amazing. Now it's just something we have. It's a tool we use. We can plan. We can know that you know we're planning on visiting Seattle in August. And here's what the weather usually is like. It may not be perfect, but at least it gives us, you know, those types of technologies used to be amazing. Now they're just normal. They're just things we use. Um, and, and so I think we're, uh, as we advance our understanding, this will become just a normal way of trying to know what's, you know, what, what's, uh, what's in it for you, knowing what, what, uh, what is there, maybe knowing um, the reason why your wife shouldn't try to feed you liver. Uh, because you already have some genetics that do that do that for you. I'm always trying to find genetic reasons for my for to keep my wife from uh, intervening on my behalf. Um, <laughs> she uh, she wants to be healthier than I do, and and I say, well, I'm, I'm sure I have a gene that that um, that doesn't prefer lettuce. So uh, I'll just have to go find that. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun, and I feel lucky. Um, that we were able to get you on. You're you're in the middle of 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 all of this cool and and latest stuff. And I think those students, what what would you like them to know uh, uh, when they leave um, the program? Well, we're we're hoping that they will um, feel like feel comfortable with the genome. You know, be something that they're not afraid of. Um, that they'll have some tools that will help them make uh, good decisions for themselves and their families. And for those who are interested, have a new career path that will allow them to really grow and have a fulfilling life. I, you know, I've been very fortunate. We've been able to do research work, clinical work, policy work that has impacted a number of people's lives in a positive way. I wish that on everyone um, that, you know, they, these students, there's so many these really bright, ambitious, hardworking young people. Um, I want them to have the kind of fulfilling high passion career that I've been able to have. And so um, we'll try to give them as many tools as possible so they can go out and, and excel. Howard McLeod, an internationally renowned expert on genomics and genomic medicine, now living in my hometown area of St. George. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much. Wonderful to see you. And, uh, congratulations on, on all the success. Thank you. Five O'Clock is produced by Ayana Monteverdi 